Would it be bad if I put that as my Instagram bio? Oh, me, Hannah ate my friend's sad face. What are you doing here? Why don't you take this bottle and go to bed? Paradiso. Welcome to episode 6 of Cinephile Paradiso. I am your host, Quaid Kirshner, and I'm sitting in a warm and dimly lit room while being staunched by my devilish and daring co-host, David Collins. Say hi, David. Hi, David. Quaid, I have a joke for you. Oh, what's the joke? What does the number 8, no, no, and my family all have in common. That's really insensitive because I feel like a lot of people who saw that movie that you are referring to could be quite triggered by that joke. Anyway, before we start, David, I have a bone to pick with you. Okay. Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you something very personal and you were very condescending in your reaction and made me feel very small. Well... Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, goodness <laughs> gracious. Is this about your foot odour? Wow, thanks for mentioning that. No, it's actually not about my foot odor. Um, I told you a few weeks ago that I had purchased Looker and Raya and the Last Dragon on 4K and Blu-ray, and I asked you if that was a bad thing because I already have Disney Plus, and you said to me, Quaid, you just do what you have to do. Oh, I don't even remember saying that. I must just go into autopilot when you start talking <laughs> about your Disney movie collection. I can't remember. Anyway, have you watched them yet? No, I haven't. Okay, I haven't had time because I'm too busy watching the films for this podcast. Well, we're just going to have to work them into the theme somehow mm -hmm. so that we can talk about them. Yeah, may maybe one day. Anyway, so the theme for tonight is Infamy. And we selected two films in particular. One deals with an infamous character. And then the other one deals with, I guess, the movie itself is very, very infamous. Uh, but before we get into that, David, maybe we should discuss the other movies that we were going to maybe pick. Absolutely. Yeah. So do, do you want to mention any of them or do you remember the ones that we discussed? Well, first, because Infamy, when we pulled that from the... Uh, what did we pull it from? Yeah, last time, a hat or something. It was from a hat, yeah. It was from a hat. Because we did the podcast at my place last week. We did. And yeah. all you have is hats. Everywhere. And all I have is hats, yeah. yeah. Um, when we uh, pulled Infamy initially, we both actually were drawn to movies that had the same actor in them and he was playing gangsters in both of them because we yeah. started thinking about infamous individuals. Should we mention that actor? Even though I don't really like to mention him anymore. No, let's not. Let's keep moving. Yeah, um, I mean the movie that this actor was in was in uh, Black Mass which is what I, I guess suggested and David suggested Public Enemies. That's right. And then we were also thinking of reviewing either Easy A or Mean Girls because, you know, Regina George the infamous high school um... Blonde. I was going to say bitch, but then I didn't want to sound um, misogynistic. Yeah. Also, um, Easy A being a contemporary interpretation of the, the Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. So she becomes infamous throughout the story. And then there was one more movie we were thinking of. Thinking of. Thinking of. Thinking of uh, Zodiac. And Pikachu Pet Detective. And Pikachu. And no, definitely not Pikachu Pet Detective. Because he figures out who the Zodiac killer is. That's not true. Anyway, so yeah, those were the films that we were tossing up. However, we came to an agreement, and I think we should discuss the movie that David picked first, because um, I guess before we get into it, it is a very controversial film. This film has been banned in a lot of countries for, I guess, perfect enough reasons. David and I are going to try keep this lighthearted, but through the lightheartedness of this, we don't want anyone to think that we're making a joke of what we're discussing or being insensitive. It's just because the film is quite 
heavy and disturbing. I kind of want to just try keep this as light-hearted as possible, but I we mean it in no offense. Yeah, I think before we go any further, it is probably appropriate to issue a trigger warning just for things like sexual assault, violence, yes. physical torture, um, and later on in the episode, mental health as well. I know that most of the time that we're discussing heavy-hitting films, these might be themes discussed, but especially today, we will be talking about them. And again, if we use comedy as levity or a way of lightening the load, we're in no way making fun of the serious subject matter within the films, probably more each other than anything else. Yeah, de definitely. So I think we'll start then, David. Do you want to mention your movie? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. the film that I decided to go with was Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, by Pierpaolo Pasolini. I think before discussing the film, it's actually really important to contextualise the director. So Pasolini was born on the 5th of March in 1922, and he's an Italian poet, filmmaker, writer, and intellectual who also distinguished himself as a journalist, novelist, translator, playwright, visual artist, and actor. He's most well-known internationally for his movies, but especially in Italy, he's known as sort of a Renaissance man and a personality that was quite groundbreaking for his time. He was an openly gay man, and he really pushed cultural conversations. He was a controversial personality due to his straightforward style. Pasolini's legacy remains contentious. There are still people today that don't necessarily agree with his depiction of, I guess, Italian culture, but also, again, he's celebrated by others. He was openly gay, as I mentioned. He was an avowed Marxist. He voiced strong criticisms of what he viewed as petty bourgeois values and the emerging consumerism within Italy. So he did tend to lean, I mean, I said he was a Marxist, so he did have certain yes. communist ideologies, which is, again, that's important for this film. He was an established major figure in European literature and cinematic arts. I'm a bit of a stand for Pasolini. His unsolved murder at Ostia. Yeah, so Salo was his last film before he was murdered. He was only murdered what a few was it a few days or a few weeks after the film's release. Uh, well, he wasn't really he wasn't murdered before the film was released. He uh, was oh, sorry, after he, it finished filming. Yeah, he, he was murdered before the film came out. I mean, I'm not going to draw too many comparisons because we have way too much to already talk about this film. But it kind of is, reminds me a little bit of Eyes Wide Shut in the sense that it's sort of a contentious film by an established director that wasn't actually released until after after his death and is still discussed separately to the rest of the oeuvre of that director's work. So let's jump into the film. Yeah, what's the movie about? Like, let's talk about what the film's about. <laughs> so Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, the name is actually broken into two parts, Salo and The 120 Days of Sodom. It's a 1975 horror art film, I think is the yeah. best way to describe no, it. I agree. And it was directed and co-written by Pierpaolo Pasolini. It was co-written because Sergio Citi, Ossetti was uh, originally slated to direct it. He was the co-writer. Oh. And well, then Pasolini decided he's going to direct it. Well, uh, Sergio was scheduled to be shooting other things at around the same time. I think it was just decided. Um, Pasolini did contribute rather significant things to the script. For example, breaking it into sections like Dante's Inferno, but we'll get yeah, to that, that in a second. Yeah, that's the inspiration, yeah. The film is a loose adaptation of of the 1785 novel, uh, first published in 1904, The 120 Days of Sodom, by the infamous, speaking of infamy, Marquis de Sade. So the Marquis de Sade is this character who was an author, and Napoleon actually chucked him in the Bastille for being a bit too much of a, a scallywag, and he wrote this while he was imprisoned and wrapped it up and was apparently putting it on a scroll and storing it in the wall. It is an unfinished manuscript, so it was published unfinished and it wasn't Oh, so it's unfinished. Well, the original book, book 120 uh, Days of Sodom, is that. unfinished. And it was more of an examination of the 
I guess, the bourgeois French aristocrats and how... They abused the commoners. Well, how a li he was questioning um, whether a libertine attitude of anything is acceptable and everything goes can be pushed to an extreme where it is unacceptable or... I don't know. It's really hard. I've tried to read the 120 Days of Sodom and it does read a bit like a telephone book of absurdist ways to... Torture people? Be grotesque. So there's a lot of torture in there as well, but there's a lot of... there's a obsession with excretions and things that come out of the body. So there's yeah. a lot of talk about cum and mucus and, and the book itself, I don't think, I mean, it's hard to know what his motivations were. But, and, but pretty much Pasolini, he changed the historical context of, of the movie because it's not set during that time. It's set in during the World War II era. So the book, I guess, The 120 Days of Sodom, it leaves itself open to interpretation in the sense that when it's not taken literally, it was actually something that was embraced by the absurdists and the Dadaists of the 21st century because it is a book that is essentially absurd with the lengths that the characters within it go to. I don't think the actions are meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be, and I hate this term because it's usually just justification for shitty expression, but a quote-unquote thought exercise. Um, so he's updated the story to be set in World War II era. The name of the film Salo actually comes from a region in Italy. Now, Quaid, do you know where Salo is or why Salo is relevant to the film? Well, Salo is relevant to the film because that's where the fascist movement was. Well, where one of them were. Salo was a town in northern Italy, which Mussolini's fascist government effectively made their capital from 1943 until they fell from power in 1940. The place had particular relevance for Pier Paolo Pasolini because his brother was actually murdered there. The Germans actually rescued Mussolini from his mountain prison and restored him in the north as the ruler of the Italian Social Republic. So it was sort of a last-ditch puppet fascist regime, sort of near Lake Garda, just before the end of the Second World War. They essentially made Italy a puppet government for Germany. So the Nazis were in charge, but they said, Italy, you're still Italy, but wasn't really. And Mussolini was in charge of that puppet state. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. And instead of being based in Rome, it was based in Salo. So what's that actual movie about now? Let's get into that, yeah. The film focuses on four wealthy, corrupt Italian libertines in the time of the fascist Republic of Salo. So as I mentioned, that's 1943 until 1945. And the four... The four libertines represent archetypes within most... Societies? Societies. Yeah. You have uh, the Duke, you have the Bishop, you have the President, and you have the Banker. So essentially you have the State, you have the representative of aristocracy, you have the representative of the church, and you have the representative of commerce. And these are people that within most societies or cultures, regardless of what structure they are, whether it is communist, whether it is capitalist, whether it is socialist, these tend to be the, the heads of state. Even though the movie uses fascism as the vehicle to explore this story because it is something that is so relevant to Italy and that part of Italy and when this film is made, he very intentionally made this film to apply to anywhere in the world, I guess, where there are heads of state that are hypocritical. I guess. So these four libertines kidnap 18 teenagers and subject them to four months of extreme violence, sadism, and sexual and psychological torture. The film explores themes of political corruption, consumerism, authoritarianism, nihilism, morality, capitalism, totalitarianism, sadism, sexuality, and fascism. Now the story is broken into four segments. This is inspired by the Dante's Divine Comedy. So another, we mentioned that earlier. We did. Yeah. Another darling of Italian culture, Dante. There's the circle of manias, the circle of shit, and the circle of blood. 
Oh, and also prior to that, there's the Antiferno. So that's which prior, is like the prior, I guess the opening, the prequel, essentially. Well, yeah, it's the pre it prelude to entering hell. Yeah, premiering at the Paris Film Festival on 28th November 1975, the film had a brief theatrical run in Italy before being banned in January 1976, and was released in the United States the following year on the 3rd of October in 1977. Because it depicts youth subjected to graphic violence, torture, sexual abuse, and murder, the film was controversial upon its release and had remained banned in many countries, including Australia until 1993. My point is, before we do dive yeah. into it, this film was banned until 1993 in Australia. David Stratton on its release from David and Margaret at the Movies gave it zero stars, criticised the film for being wooden, and Margaret wouldn't actually watch it. I feel like this film has a reputation for being controversial. Because, I mean, it's very controversial. Well, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, because I think that, for me, the violence and torture that's depicted in this film is actually far more rudimentary and not nearly as grotesque as things that we see in a lot of mainstream films today, including things like Silent Hill, The Human Centipede, and other films that have become slightly a meme and partly for me the reason why this film remains so controversial is because it uses social dynamics as such a metaphor within this film. It almost feels a little bit too close to home in the way that these torches are being applied to people instead of being something that's more linked to a computer game. It's linked to regime and I think that we don't like to think how close we could be to a situation like this. A situation like this. So much ab about this film for me is about the b banality of evil rather than how sensational it is. And I think that that's what terrifies people. But I want you to tell me what you think of this film before I go on. Well, yeah, I just, I think I want to get to, I've, I guess, a very clean and concise, simple, I guess, plot summary of this film, if that makes sense. So like you said, we have four libertines that have abducted and kidnapped these 18 teenagers and they're aided by these four women, hey? There are these four women. So one of them is an ex-sex worker, even though in all the write-ups she's called an ex-prostitute because of the cadence of the time. Yeah. There is also a woman who essentially becomes the piano player, even though in mo times of uh, solitude, you see that she's actually finding the whole thing quite distressing and ends up throwing herself out the window. There is another twist, woman- yeah. All of them are sort of credited as being ex-sex workers. Yeah, but, but at the end one of the day, has, one has a, um, I guess, a fetish for excrement, 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 yeah, yep. excrement. Um, and there's another one who also sort of acts as a storyteller. So much of this film is about story and how story influences well, culture. That's the thing because the libertines ask in each, I guess, segment of the film, they ask each of the women to talk about their sexual histories and pasts, and that I guess creates a eroticism in the room. I don't know about eroticism. Maybe so not eroticism. It's it's a power play. I think what I want to get to is that these libertines, I like throughout the film, I was struggling to work out whether this was for power or for I guess sexual arousal. It it's I mean look I think the simplest way of saying it is it is forcing uh, these youths to be in this debaucherous uh, rape mansion is probably the the best way I could like describe it and it is very I, I get what you mean by you don't feel like it's controversial I think I no, think I, I'm not saying controversial I think that the controversy of it is drummed up and people go like the fact that oh Margaret definitely and watch it oh this film is too controversial I'm like no we see stuff as violent yeah. as this film all the time and I think the message is just as relevant today as when the movie was made so I think I can't watch this I, I think he's a little bit precious or holding on to the controversy that was attached to the film because I think 
governments don't like being criticised in this way. You said that the film unit weren't sure whether it was about erotic arousal or power. I think it was 100% about power. I do not yeah, think that No, no, was... by the end of the film, no. I, I did realise, I was yeah. like, no, th this is about Th power. There is nothing, this is the thing, there is nothing erotic or sensual about the bodies in this film. I think that the problem with this film is that it separates the audience into people that want to watch it because it's sensationalist and people that are revolted by it because they think that there's something, I guess, erotic about the film. When the reality is, I think the bodies are being used as metaphors for the populace or the community or the people of a country, those that are vulnerable, those that are exposed to those that are in power and the way we are reduced to essentially cattle and our bodily autonomy is taken away from us by those people that are in power which is why at the start they ban any sex that is consensual or pleasurable it is because it is about these people being exploited and used by those that are in power to their detriment and it is about that exploitation of that power dynamic we see this in laws that restrict the rights of women to have abortions we see this restricting in laws that uh, ban homosexuality it's 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 about government officials who are in positions that and we see this, we've seen this recently in the States, even though we definitely see it in our own country, where there are politicians that have had their mistresses have abortions, but then they vote against women's rights to choose to have an abortion. We see it in politicians that say because of their religious beliefs, gay marriage shouldn't be allowed, but then they are found to be having affairs with gay sex workers. It's, it's, it's that dynamic yeah. of hypocrisy. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, in terms of controversy, I think the last... 15 minutes for me personally were very very hard to watch um in the last 15 minutes you're seeing body parts being burned by a candle you're seeing someone's tongue being cut off you're seeing um someone's eye part of their eye being cut off that i think for me was the hardest to watch what else happened in that scene because it was very oh and then you saw someone's scalp being cut off so that's that, sorry i went into graphic detail no into that's that. fine see this is the thing i don't think that's graphic i watched house of the dragon last night and i think i saw most of those things being depicted on an HBO show with special effects budgets and you could very much tell that these were prosthetics being done to this in the movie. Oh I, yes, yeah, I, no, I think definitely. I think being confronted by the reality that these are tortures that are being, that are to this day done to people by, I guess, governments that are meant to be in place to protect them and look after them is the thing that people don't want to face. Also, the last scene, we are, for this entire film, the way that it is filmed, it is quiet, it is a step back. It's almost like a stage play, the way well, it's yes, framed. There's no, there's no narrative as such. It's more you're an observer, you're an expectator. No. Uh, expectator. No, sorry. As a... You hit the nail on the head. You're a voyeur because yeah. so much of this film is about the voyeurism of the people watching the torture, and you were being oh, spectator was the word. Spectator, I was and you were yeah. being confronted in the last scene that you are a voyeur because you have watched this film. You've watched the exploitation of these actors in this role, even though, it, by all accounts, it was actually allegedly a very jovial movie set. I think this is also an examination of Pasolini's own artwork to himself. The prior movies he made to this were all celebrations of life, his trilogy of life. You have the Decameron, you have the Canterbury Tales, and you and have Arabian the Arabian Nights. Nights. I really want to watch Arabian Nights. It all of really them gorgeous films where he embraces the sexual revolution of the 1960s and uh, 70s. Have you seen them? Yes. All three? Yes. Oh, this, recommend? 
Um, yeah, I mean, yes, but this is this is a cynical look at his own practice where he actually starts to think that the sexual revolution is another form of exploitation and commercialism, and he's actually criticising his own use of nudity and sexuality in film as a form of exploitation in this film, where he tries to objectively look at the body as not something erotic, but something that is being exploited as commerce, and he is pointing out to the oh, audience... Oh, hence the capital, themes of capitalism. Exactly. Okay, because so, I didn't and understand he, before where is, the capitalism was coming in, but now that you've explained well, there's it like another that. Bit that we'll talk about in a sec but he's also flipping it on the audience saying and you're a consumer of this so at the end where we are with the is it the duke he's looking through binoculars at all this torture and then he flips them around so everything zooms out we're suddenly made very aware that we are watching this from a distance just like all the perverts that are watching this happen he's saying you're consuming this as well i think part of the reason this film struggles is because so often because it is shot so and i mean this in an artistic sense it is shot very beautifully the framing of the shots are done very gorgeously the bodies of the young people are actually beautiful. The set is beautiful. We have lots of modernist art. So when you take a screenshot of this film, especially the bit where the nude, you know, brides and grooms come in holding the flowers. That was very beautiful. That reminded me of some of your work. But this is the thing. I think that what he was trying to get at, he really struggled with in the sense of saying, this is meant to be something about the grotesque and the abject when there is so much incidental beauty in it. There's a Truffaut quote, and I'm going to completely get this mangle this because I'm not reading it, where he says that it is impossible to make an anti-war film. It always seems to be glorifying it. They found that even movies like Full Metal Jacket and Jarhead, which are meant to be anti-war, mm -hmm. are actually embraced by the military as films that they watch seeing as glorifying what they do because there's that Clockwork Orange quote about how it's funny how colours of the real world only seem really real when you watch them on a screen. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. And he's speaking about watching violence on screen and how the blood seems so red and how it's so decorative. It's difficult to depict something as problematic when on camera it looks beautiful. And I think Pasolini was trying to make us slightly revolted at ourselves for watching a spectacle that is about something so grotesque and viewing it in a gorgeous way. Fellow cinephiles, as is the nature with all things controversial, Quaid and I have actually been censored. Just kidding, no. Due to my ineptitude, I've managed to lose the last 10 minutes of the Silo review, but you're probably relieved because all of my internet facts were probably becoming a bit torturous. So I'm just going to quickly wrap this one up. Quaid ended up giving the movie three stars, and I gave it 3.5. We are now moving on to the 2019 Todd Phillips film, Joker. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Just uh, the film is the joke. Like just uh... And the film is Joker, which was released in 2019 and directed by Todd Phillips. I still can't wrap my head around that he directed this because he had directed Hangover Prior and I think they're I just why, very, anyway. very different films. Anyway, Joker is a movie about a man named Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is you ostracized <laughs> from society and experiences daily prejudice because of his offbeat personality and his pathological laughter. Arthur lives in Gotham City, a city on the brink of political and socio-economic collapse. Arthur works as a clown and looks after his mentally ill mother while dreaming of becoming a professional comedian. He takes inspiration from his idol, Murray Franklin, played by Robert De Niro, a talk show host who he watches every night on the TV. Arthur goes about his day-to-day -day in a state of delusion and grandeur, imagining that his next-door neighbour, Sophie Dummond, played by Zazie Beetz, is his lover. So that's my little quick plot synopsis of the film. I'm going to go straight into interesting facts. Boom. 
Oh, shut up. It is the first R-rated film in history to gross 1 billion worldwide. Is it R-rated? I didn't know that. Of course it's R-rated. Well, American R-rated, which was our MA, 15 plus rated. Oh, gosh. Yep. So the movie only cost 55 million to make, which makes it the <laughs> least all? expensive film to make a billion dollars. Fair enough. Which is really cool. Queen Phoenix said, perfecting the Joker's laugh was the hardest part of playing the character. So a little bit of Not history. Not losing all that weight? I mean, yeah, that was a big, big part of it, but yeah, that was pretty intense. I do want to talk about the Joker as a character because he, he is very iconic. He's very influential. He's, he's pretty much, come on, he is the best comic book villain of all time. You are the person to talk about this because can you speak to your interest and research into comic books? For everyone listening, I am a major DC Comics fan. I do not go near Marvel. I hate Marvel. I've always been a DC boy and I have over 6,000 comic books. So this is, I'm very passionate about this movie. So anyway, the Joker first appeared in Batman issue one, which was released in 1940 on April 25th. And the character was created by Bob Kane and a lot of people only give Bob Kane the credit, Bill Finger and oh, Jerry Mr. Robinson. Finger. I'll leave Mr. Finger alone. Anyway, so that was the Joker. Now, pretty much because the character is so iconic, a lot of creators and comic book fans alike felt that no origin could ever, ever, I guess... Do him justice? Yeah, it couldn't, could never do the character justice. So for a very, very long time, everyone avoided trying to explain the Joker's origin. However, it was first explained in 1951 in a story in Detective Comics issue 168 and the story was called The Man Behind the Hood and that is known as one of the earliest origin stories for the Joker but the, the most famous story for the Joker's origin is of course Alan Moore's and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. Now The Killing Joke is very very controversial because it does in I guess explore the Joker's origin. It's also about how the Joker cripples Barbara Gordon aka Batgirl and then goes to sexually abuse her. So it is a very, very... Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's very graphic. It came out in 1988. That's uh, look, when I came out. Yep, that's when you... Not when you came out the closet, when you came out the womb. <laughs> <laughs> Both important. Both important times. So, um, yeah, what am I getting at? Yeah, it's a very... um iconic story. I've read it. Yeah, the, the art's beautiful. However, it is very, very, um, very confronting. More uh, so or less so than Salo? Uh, I mean, a little bit less so than Salo. I mean, <laughs> there is a part... That sounds pretty hardcore. Well, I will say, there is a part in The Killing Joke where um, the Joker leads Commissioner Gordon into this... What are those circus tents called where you get into the go-kart and then you go around? It's like a horror house, but you're in like a go-kart. Like a haunted, a haunted house? Not so much a haunted house, but like, you know when you're in those carts yeah. and they're on the wheels and they're going on the tracks? No, it's a haunted house, isn't it? I, I get, let's just oh, go I with haunted know. house. I don't know. Or fun house. Fun house. Fun house, yeah. So there's a scene where the Joker puts Commissioner Gordon on this fun house. He's already stripped him naked and bullied and belittled him. And this he's is very similar to Salo. And he, yeah, and he, he's on this cart and then all of a sudden on all these screens around him, the Joker puts up these pictures of his daughter Barbara Gordon being crippled, being sexually abused, Jeepers and he creepy. subjects him to those images. So yeah, it's, it's very intense, but I want to go back, sorry, to the Joker's origin. So the Joker's uh -huh. origin explored in The Killing Joke, there's some similarities to 2019's Joker. So in the comic book, 
pretty much um, the Joker is this, uh, I guess, lower class struggling individual who uh, stops his job as an engineer because he dreams of being a comedian. But on top of that, his wife is pregnant and he's struggling to make ends meet. Anyway, what ends up happening is he makes a deal with this mob to go rob a chemical plant with the guise of a red hood. And he wears this red hood to, you know, disguise his identity, but also act as a front man for the red hood mob. However, of course the mob, because you never trust the mob, they betray him and they leave him to battle Batman by himself when Batman finds him uh, trying to rob something from Ace Chemicals. And then eventually the Red Hood falls into this vat of chemicals and that's what bleaches his hair green and turns his skin white. And so the whole story, the idea of the story is how one bad day can change an individual forever. So, yeah. Oh, is that where we were going with that? That's where we were going with <laughs> it. Sorry, you were kind of rolling your eyes I wasn't. I was, no, I wasn't. I was trying to take it all in because all of these origin stories, whether or not, you know, I mean... Let's just let's just take them as they are. Yeah, but they're a bit more compelling than this movie. Well, see, the the funny thing about this, um, for everyone listening, is that David looks down on my comic book obsession okay. and thinks that comic books are for kids, especially no. the superhero okay. ones. I, no, no, no. Are you going to try to no. defend yourself now, David? I'm not. I'm going to attack you for misquoting me. When we say for kids, we were talking about children's movies. We weren't talking about comic books. I respect and admire. I like to call them family movies, actually, because yeah, so I think films that was, should be targeted for. Everyone. And that was the argument. I've never derided your uh, interest in comic books because I admire your interest in it and the artistry and I like that you like things. I've tried to get you to read a comic book and you refuse. No, I didn't. I read that one that where the you lady never, has horns. No, you yes, ne I did. That's yes, not a superhero one. Oh, I'm talking about a superhero one. So maybe... I've even bought, you've taken me to things and I've bought comic books. I've gotten into comic books because yeah, of Yeah, but you, not so the superhero ones because you look down on superhero I pop culture. Look down you on do, you okay. do. It's true, everyone. Well, okay. Well, here. Are I've, you going to read? So if I lend you the killing joke would you read it? What I would like to say is that I have made a resolution to myself while discussing this film. I intend to do it understanding that this film has been made for an audience that is an audience for this sort of media. So I'm not going to belittle the comic book because I understand that there is a huge fan base and it is incredibly important and justified. So we're going to discuss it objectively, taking into account that that is incredibly valid and and important. Of course. Anyway, I want to go into... So, um, the actress that plays Arthur Fleck's mother is Frances Conroy. Incredible. Now, well, yeah, but I want to get into that. So, this is really cool. So, Frances Conroy was actually in 2004's Catwoman, and I feel like Warner Brothers and DC Comics, they looked at her and said, hey, we really fucked you over with that really shit film. We're going to give you this now. So, it was a bit of like, it's her reconciliation, I, essentially. I, I, do, I think that they would sell out their own mothers for some money, these people. Um, I think that they gave her the role because something about this film I really admire is the entire cast is incredible. Okay, and she well, is an incredible actress. It's good actress. that you've said something positive about the film. I have a film. lot of positive things to say about the film. So, David and I actually watched this at my place. I've seen it before. David hadn't seen it before. And I could just see his eyes roll a few times. And I think I know... Uh, so a few critiques about the film, which I, I want to get right you're into. Anticipating my critique. No, I, but no, because I want to get into it because you're not the only one that has said this. So a lot of people. I haven't said have, anything. Yet. A lot of people have issue with this film because they compare it to the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Now, what I want to say is, is that that was the intent of the film. It is. It, it's supposed to have parallels 
to the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver because that's actually what the film has taken inspiration from. It's it's purposefully done. And I don't like it when people say, oh, well, then it's not original because I'm sorry, but no movie at the end of the day is 100% original. Wait, you're having a straw man argument with no one right now. No, I, no but I wanna, I'm arguing with the critics out there of this film because I actually think- You're this, arguing with the haters. I'm arguing with the haters. Also, <laughs> what I don't like is because I think now people are so used to Marvel as a cinematic universe and as, I guess, the- uh, stamp of no what it's like the what's that word when you're describing it's like the cutout for it's like the prototype yeah it's like i feel like the marvel movies have become the prototype of what a good comic book adaption should be so i feel that a lot of people got offended when warner brothers and dc comics made this film and they wanted to make something with a bit of meat on it. It's almost like people were thinking how dare they try to make a comic book movie serious and and make it more than just, I guess. I mean, if you're going to talk about it being serious, I guess this is this film is the equivalent of a grilled burger, and what you were talking about the other ones as being is a McDonald's burger. This is a slight step up from the fast, greasy trash that you'd be getting normally with a comic book movie. Yeah, look, I, I yes, I, I see what you I see what you're saying. I do want to. I'm going to quickly go into the things I like about it, then I'm going to talk to you about it because I know that you have a lot of opinions. <laughs> I, what I do, the cinematography was amazing. Like every shot was purposefully done. It was all meticulously shot, and it was shot with intention. It was shot with intention. You could tell every... there was a shot list. They weren't just doing coverage. They had they had they yeah. storyboarded it, and they were like, "We want this, 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 and this." Yeah, it, it's insane. And that color grading of the film has all these green hues and all the neon lights. The colors from the neon lights would just pop, and even the Joker's like costume when he first gets into the, that costume at the end. Well, I should say that red suit. It just pops on that screen, Ronald and it McDonald. is it is powerful. No, it's more than Ronald McDonald, and <laughs> and. Honestly, yeah, I want to go back to the color grading. Yep. It just made my soul squeal yeah. like a pig having an having an orgasm. Like goodness gracious! Oh my god! Very long orgasms as well. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I, I want to go back to how I was talking about, I guess, the socio and political collapse of Gotham City because um, the film is deliberately they deliberately make the aesthetic, I guess, look very eighties. Do you, do you agree with me or you're not agreeing with me, David? No, I, I agree. Oh, okay, okay, I, thank I, you. Because you're, you're looking at me strangely. Well, tell me if I'm wrong, because again, I know yes. you're the expert on this. And I respect that you're the expert on this. So is Gotham City meant to act as an analogue for New York? Yes. Okay, so I guess it's sort of like you yes, said, 80s, in reference to the time when New York, the, the garbage wasn't being collected. It was the run rats by gangs. Were, yes, the rats, rats were everywhere. everywhere. It wasn't the city now that everyone thinks of it as. It was literally a trash heap where there was a lot of creativity and interesting things going on, but also there was a huge amount of crime and poverty and corruption. Exactly. Exactly. And what I do want to say is I think the film touches on, I guess, the upper class and lower class divide. You have you have the like mental health care system being abused because there's not enough funding in it. There's a scene where Arthur Flex psychologist says, Hey, I, I can no longer see you. There I is no think more she's a psychologist. I think she's a social worker. Probably a social worker. Like she she says to him, I can't see you anymore. There is no funding. Um there is a scene where Arthur Fleck is being tormented by these suits because of his pathological laughing and they start to beat him to death. And then he gets out his gun and he kills some motherfuckers, which it, he did it for his own protection. And pretty much what starts this social uproar is that Bruce, Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas Wayne, um, is interviewed. And in that interview, he says something that creates a lot of hurt, distrust, uh, distrust, distrust? 
Distrust, yeah. A lot of hurt, distrust. Um, so pretty much what he says, which creates this catalyst for social, for this social uproar and upheaval, is what kind of coward would do something that cold-blooded? Someone who hides behind a mask. Someone who is envious of those more fortunate than themselves. Yet they're too scared to show their own face. And until those kinds of people change for the better, those of us who made something of our lives will always look at those who haven't as nothing but clowns. Now, even me, I got so fucking angry because I'm sorry, but these white privileged people have like the nerve and the audacity to say we've made something of ourselves whereas the lower class they've they've done nothing it's like no you were born into this into this wealth these people weren't you guys were given a fighting chance these these other groups of people weren't and just to straight away assume that arthur had killed these men because he was jealous or envious they didn't even think oh maybe it was to protect himself. It was just, it was so disgusting. And I'm like, no wonder there was social upheaval. And I know that the film does explore a lot of these themes in quite a general sense, but I think it hits the mark. It didn't need to get too much into the nitty gritty because it was just there already bubbling on the surface. I and think it's also a very American thing, this idea that it is a place of self-made people and you can succeed, you can live the American dream, which is this huge fallacy we all know now, especially, like you said, there is this huge class divide between the haves and the have-nots, and uh, they keep on having people in power that pull anything that is viewed to be too, quote-unquote, socialist or communist, such as healthcare, such as mental health care. The fact that in the, was it the 70s or the 80s, they closed all the mental, the public health, uh, mental health care facilities and kicked everyone literally out onto the streets, which is why they have such a um, prevalence of houseless people living in America because so many of them are in positions where there is no structure to support you if everything goes wrong or you need some sort of mental assistance or care at some point and there's just nothing there. So I think that especially for an American audience this is very poignant and should be a warning to places like Australia that seem to be very quickly leading towards privatisation and copying the American model because it's a trap. It is a trap. Wow. I, yeah, I, I honestly feel that this film is really powerful the second time watching it. It just, it evokes so much emotion and it's so powerful because you're rooting for the bad guy. I the whole time was rooting for Arthur Fleck. Like, yes, I, I understand that he did come across as quite disturbed. I would, I think he had been, I think he had developed an intellectual impairment due to when he was a child in, in this film, um, he finds out that his mother isn't actually his biological mother. Um, she had adopted him and then she had gotten involved with someone who was abusing him as a child and I, I guess gave him a concussion was what well, he no, had read in the files. He gave him a, a brain injury. So, of course, Arthur goes and kills his mother after he finds out that information. He... I guess he got access to that information because he went to the Arkham... Arkham? Arkham. I, I should know how to say Arkham. I love the comics. Um, he goes to the Arkham State Ward um, because his mother used to stay there before... I mean, after the abuse, the alleged abuse. So he went to this hospital to try retrieve one of the files that talks about her case because throughout the film, major plot twists and the comic book geek and me hated this idea. You pretty much find out that Arthur Fleck may actually be... Thomas Wayne's biological son because Arthur's mother when she used to work for Mr. Wayne she says that she had once had an affair with him and that he is the result of that affair. So he goes to investigate it by going to this hospital and then he finds out through the um 
documents that this is actually not true, that this his mother is in this state of delusion. And where am I getting at Is this? your phone ringing? Yes, it is. You just chastised me for having my phone not on flight mode. I'm sorry, everyone, he's so unprofessional. What are you getting at with this? I'm not sure. I think that it was, I liked that it was left still ambiguous whether or not he was actually adopted and, or and, not. And that's the thing. What I want to say about the Joker is that his character is supposed to be a mystery. It's supposed to be ambiguous. So that's why throughout the film, it is from his perspective and you're not actually meant to really know what is real and what isn't. That's the whole point of that character because it's an unreliable narrator. That's what he is. He's unreliable. Mm. You don't know if his story is 100% true or not. Yes. And, yeah, where was I getting with the mother thing? I was just explaining how... Yeah, know, Dr. Freud, where were you going with that? Well, yeah, just the plot twist. I was talking about the plot twist. Oh, my God. And <laughs> what I also did appreciate is that throughout the comics and in any kind of DC comic media, Bruce Wayne's parents are always painted in this glorified oh, yeah. light. Because even as children, we look at our parents as gods. And until we get to that point in our lives where we realize... Our parents are people. Our parents are people. We're still quite naive to that information. So it was very, I actually enjoyed watching this film from the perspective that the Waynes were these privileged hmm. beings who didn't really give a shit about anyone else but themselves and their yeah. own financial gain or well-being. That I found like very, very refreshing. Refreshing. But also, I mean, but they were good people. <laughs> anyway, um, in the comics, in the comics, I want to say, uh, I do want to talk about what, um, because I think Todd Phillips, he like hits the nail on the head with this. He says that he describes Joaquin Phoenix's take on Arthur as a guy who is searching for identity, who mistakenly becomes a symbol. His goal genuinely is to make people laugh and bring joy to the world. And I think this is a sad case of Arthur Fleck being, I don't want to say too big for his boots, but obviously he has this dream of being a comedian, but it's never going to come to uh, fruition because I guess sadly he just doesn't have the means to make it happen. He's not mentally stable. He doesn't have, I, I don't want to say mental. I mean, he's not funny. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's, oh, David, don't be so blind. But yeah, he's just, he's not, he's not funny. And it is, it is sad because throughout the film, you do see the prejudice against him. No one has any time for him because I guess of how he presents. And it's really sad. There's a point in the film where he does finally get on the Murray Franklin show and when he starts tearing up and crying and says that the funny thing about having a mental illness is, is that like no one wants you to act like you have one. That was like, it, it hit hard. I, and he, and he starts like tearing up. I, I, and I felt fucked because I was like, Oh my God, I'm feeling for this character who in the comic books has killed so many people and is in like, like insane. Like, well, anyway, what did you think of the film? Let's start on some positives. I, yeah, let's, um, I want to hear the positives. I feel, I really think that everybody in this film act phenom acted yeah, you, phenomenally. Yeah, you've said that, David. I know I said it, but I need to stress it. I'm a huge fan of the act, what's her name? Hang on. Who plays the mother? I'm, yeah, I'm a huge- Francis Conroy. I'm a huge fan of Francis Conroy. I'm a huge fan of Zazie Beetz. I'm a huge fan of Joaquin Phoenix. I'm a huge fan of Robert De Niro. I think that- they all did phenomenal jobs of embodying the characters that they were given to play with depth that implied a deeper personal life than the glimpses we get to actually see. So I really appreciated how well this film was acted and the cast that was in it and how that they engaged with the material to give it a level of depth. 
I think that it was shot beautifully. I'm sick of watching films where you can tell they were just shooting the shit out of it and did not give a huge amount of thought to capturing things photographically and with intention. I, Are you ready to get into the negatives? I you liked, know this is I liked, I enjoyed the social commentary on how a city can be an unfair... Unforgiving. Unforgiving and dangerous place for a lot of people. And um, I mean, in the 80s, New York was quite dangerous. Well, oh no, it, well, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, I... Here we go, everyone. Here we go. <laughs> it's gonna begin. It begins. Well, the first thing that I just want to comment on, I know you said that the film was graded beautifully. There were parts where I saw that. Other times, I think that it was handled a little bit lazily with just putting a magenta <gasps> hue over it. Yes, which yeah, I thought are was you talking about the Arkham scenes? Yeah. Where he goes into the hospital. Yeah, no, I well, agree. Also, that, that's also where it fell short a bit. But I also understand that when this film was made, like, there is a lot of technical issues that we are having with grading digital films and leaning on that sort of treatment is a resolution that I think is going to, in time, become symptomatic of this period in filmmaking. Uh, look, I just need to get to the fact that I think that the mental health aspect was lent on as a trope and not handled very well. Conflating, really? Conflating mental illness with violence without necessarily justifying it to the level that they could have, I think is a dangerous trope. Now, let me say, I understand but he was being beaten to death, David. He he was protecting himself. He wasn't being violent for the sake of being violent. Well, he no, here's the thing. I almost, and again, I, I stand by that point. Oh, no, I no, no, I, I, I stand by it. He also hunted one of them down and shot them when he was running away from him. So that's not defense, that's murder, but that's okay. They're assholes. This film, <laughs> this film all, almost had me rooting for the anti-hero, which was him. Mm. The part of the film where I thought, well, I actually don't give a shit about him was the bit where he breaks into Zazie's room. Oh yes. And it is implied that he not either Zazie, assaults the character's her, name is Sophie. He either assaults her or he assaults her and murders her. That is what is implied. I'm like, that is not justified by his motivation. She did not slight him or wrong him in any way. She just gave him attention in the lift in a funny like she was being, I guess, generous with her attention towards him as if making a joke. That was where I lost all interest in the character and thought, well... So you took it as he killed her because it's left ambiguous. You don't actually know what happened. Which I think is a cop-out on the director's part. I also think that this film, for me, felt a little bit like... And this is not... I understand that this is made for the fans of... As you addressed with me and that I was... Conf I want to confront myself with the fact that, like you said, this is IP, this is mythology that is being re-addressed and reframed. Yeah, and that it's an adaption. And that is important to the fans of it. This, um, di this did come across to me as the non-thinking man's thinking film. It felt like someone... As in the white bro guy that's like, oh my God, man, like The Departed's like the best film ever. I felt like, like whoever that? made this film is someone who would make something like The Hangover and liked comic books but saw Requiem for a Dream and went, I know, I'm going to make an artsy comic book film. The scenes where he was dancing and it was meant to be moving made me laugh. I'm like, oh, we get it. You um, like art I don't. I don't agree, and I'm going to say why I don't agree. It goes back to that notion... I guess back to musicals where when you have an emotion that is so, uh, what's the word? Uh, when you have an emotion that is so, it overcomes you and you've, you've got nothing left. You can't talk. You can't walk. All that you can do is to express that emotion is dance or sing because that's all that you, I understand. You, that's why the only I, way you can express I it. I get why it was Because there. you're so overcome by emotion. I There's no it. other way. I, I get it. I get it. For me, it was a bit stupid, but I get why it was there. Um, also, I think that it is a, huge shadow that Heath Ledger left to fill 
this intellectual property. So oh I don't. Oh my god, I'm so sick of hearing about Heath Ledger and Heath Ledger as the Joker and that whole 2008 saga. Like, I'm so like I don't mean that in any like insensitive way. Um. Like, but, but the thing is, I think that what he did for that character or to that character is the thing that left it open to people seeing this as a character worth exploring in depth, going, oh my god, a Batman villain can actually be this complicated thing. And I think this handled it superficially and incredibly poorly. The fact that, What? No. Yeah, I, I, I no. just think that this is an incredibly slapdash film as far as looking at the way that mental health is viewed in society, because again, it just sort of says that he resorts to violence because like extreme violence because this is not something that he is getting the proper treatment for which means that the inevitability for people that have, do not a neurodivergent or do not fit into society is violence and i think that, that i don't think that's what the movie was saying i think this movie was focusing on this specific individual i think if the movie was full but, of people who had issues with mental health and then they all banded together to um i guess murder people, then that's a different story. But, but I don't see, think it's saying but that. But see, that's lazy because this is an origin story for an iconic character that's been around since the 40s. So yes, like you said, this is a very well-established character and someone's gone, I'm going to win all these awards for addressing. Why is he like this? Let's explore that. I know mental health. Done. Oh, I'm so smart. Like, it just felt a bit lazy for something. It felt like someone was just going, Oscar bait, I'm going to get huge congrats for this. And again, in so many other ways, they did a very good job. But I just felt like for what they were trying to achieve, which is a deep dive on someone's psychology as to how they got to a point, it felt a little bit superficial for me. And I understand that there are people of this film that this film is important for because it is addressing it and giving weight to something that they care about a lot. And I'm glad that that exists for them. I don't want to hang too much shit on this film because I know for a lot of people, it is something that they very much enjoyed and were glad that it was given depth to. But there were certain speed bumps in this film that I personally couldn't get past. And I tried to, I really wanted to give it, I really did. I really did want to like this film out of my contrarian um, viewpoint towards myself going, oh, you don't think this film is good? Well, let's come out of it saying that it's good. It's like when I saw the Damien Hirst exhibition in Venice, everyone was saying was bullshit. I'm like, well, I'm going to go and I bet I'm going to like it. And I walked out going, you know what? It was still tacky and shit. Like, David, I don't know what to say. Um, no, I, I I'm glad I saw it. No, 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 I understand how some people may view it as slapstick. Is that what? Slapdash, not slapstick. It wasn't slapstick. <laughs> well, slapdash. I, I, I don't know. I think it's very... I think if we were to take every film... It, it, it's just like me saying, okay, I watched The Little Mermaid and I don't like the representation of uh, female characters with red hair because what you're pretty much saying is that all female characters with red hair are going to um, leave their home so that they can be with a handsome prince. No, but I think that if the fact that she has red hair is the justification they're giving for that behaviour, then it it is worth addressing. I don't think they were saying that his mental health was justifying him turning to brutality. I think the movie was a social commentary also on the use on of guns. being violent? I know. No, on the use of guns. I think it was a commentary on someone who was disadvantaged and, being was, set up to and fail. who was vulnerable, who was being set up to fail, yeah. who was literally and having... blamed for their own situation as yeah, well. Yeah, who was getting blamed for their own, si own situation. And he had an opportunity because... Now, I want to also emphasize, he didn't go and initially get this gun on his own terms. He had a friend hand him the gun after he was first brutally bashed because his friend was looking out for him and said, hey, take this because you need this in this city to protect yourself. And then he was given the gun. And then when 
it was his last line of defense when he was being beaten on the subway he had no he had nothing left to do okay it was three against one he had nowhere to turn he grabs the gun and he shoots it and then that is the first time where he has actually used a gun against it against someone for his own protection and Within it, this sounds really messed up, but because he had this tool of destruction that could protect him, it was the first time where he felt that he had something that gave him security and well, protection, Quaid, and that's why... Quaid, I understand that... I understand that there is a certain level of satisfaction from coming seeing some fuckboys getting shot on the train when they're being assholes. and trust me, like, I would be lying if I said there wasn't that guilty pleasure of me that went, no, fuck you guys, like, literally fuck you, it was a safe space to have that catharsis, so I'm not saying, I'm, my criticism of this film is not that he acted the way that he did towards those people that were threatening him, beating him, and antagonising him, it was more as an overarching thing, I don't think that it was handled delicately or nuanced like if you're going to take a deep dive into why someone becomes a serial killer i don't think that it's a story that can't be approached i think that they thought that it was going to be a lot easier than it actually was so how would you have approached the film i wouldn't have that's the thing i wouldn't have made this film because i'm not the right person to make it and i'm glad that someone is making films like this because again there is an audience for it and I'm glad it's being explored with more depth than goodies versus baddies showing up and shooting colour rays at each other and no I'm serious I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that it exists but I do want to talk about it because I think that while this is a depiction of a villain in these sorts of movies which is going to be explored which I think they are also trying to do in that man with Robert Patterson. They're going, oh, look, these new nuanced views of these what were originally incredibly campy satirical campy characters, yeah. which, to be fair, I think still had their weight of understanding their origin story to some extent, but it was done in a very Phantom of the Opera style way. I think that while we are doing that and unpacking that, this is a very early stage of that, and we need to be aware that you can't just go into it and just go, oh, it's look at me, it's, it's a mental health issue thing. I don't know. I Look, I, at the end of the day, I have to respect your opinion, but I don't agree. That, no, I that's, think, that's, like, and that's so yeah. fine. And also, I'm not saying that my opinion of this... Oh, no, is, no, no. And, and say, like, I want to say also, my, these are my opinions. This isn't, like, factual. And I mean the same as what you're saying. I do want to go back, though, because I do feel a little bit bad when I said I'm sick of hearing about Heath Ledger and his Joker portrayal. I didn't... By no means, I was trying to come across as insensitive. What well, I just mean no. is that in the time of the release of The Dark Knight, a lot of people were actually blaming the film for yeah. Heath Ledger's death, which I felt was very um, inappropriate because well, it, he, I, I, I think um, Heath Ledger at the time, from what I've heard, he had some serious mental health issues and he was using sleeping pills and people will always say, oh, it's because he got so involved in the no. character of the Joker and he couldn't overcome it, so he like took drugs and overdosed. Yeah. And I think that's a very simple way of looking at it and it's kind of disrespectful also to his death well, to just make something so black and white because it wasn't black and white. And in terms of his performance, just because someone performs has an amazing performance of a character, it doesn't mean that that character belongs to that actor. It also annoys me how people like Harrison Ford is like, oh... I'm the one and only Indiana Jones. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, yes, you're a great Shia Indiana Luke's Jones. Shia also Indiana Jones, isn't But it? it doesn't mean that that character belongs to you. So I'm sorry, but the Joker doesn't belong no. to Heath Ledger. Also, in, in terms of when you said, oh, it's the first time, The Dark Knight was the first time that a, a comic book movie could become serious, I disagree with that. There's a lot of history prior to that. I don't think I said that. that. 
Well, okay, you have Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns from 1989 and 1992. Now, Batman was the first... It brought Batman back into the darkness in terms of, like, film and TV media because before that you had the 1960s Batman campy TV show. And... Batman 1989 with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson playing the Joker, it was very, very dark and it brought yeah. this seriousness and grittiness to those characters. Well, Have you seen, seen that film? Yeah, and that's what I mean. It has been approached before. It's just, it was, it was because it was in, I guess, what you would call a, a dated aesthetic. To, no, oh, no, no, to, to love, now, to now. Yeah. Well, we, we view it I as... I love Tim Burton's Batman no, I think it's gorgeous, but what gorgeous. I mean is because it's something from the past, we, we don't necessarily relate to it as much as the way things are being told now. And now, I also have Can to, I finish on The Dark Knight, though? Please, please. Yeah, yeah. I also think my one issue is I love The Dark Knight. It is an amazing movie. It's... A, it, yeah. What I don't like about it is I feel like the hype that surrounds that movie and I guess the cinephile... Not even the cinephile, but the culture surrounding that film is quite... I find it quite toxic. It's almost like that bro-y, like, oh yeah, man, like, have you seen The Departed? It's such a fucking good movie. It's like, that's kind of like what The Dark Knight for me has started to become. It's like, oh man, have you seen The Dark Knight? Oh dude, like, Heath Ledger's a joker. Oh my God, man, like, dude, dude, yeah, like, bro, like, I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know where I'm getting with that. It's just, I think when you have something, I mean, I can't really say this because like, the Batman franchise doesn't belong to me because I have a childhood a childhood association with it, but it is very strange and jarring having something that meant a lot to you all of a sudden. I mean, Batman is already such a worldwide phenomenon, but for it to go past that with the Dark Knight and people kind of being... People were saying, oh my God, like... Well, I don't know, I don't... Ugh. Well, thank you for bringing that up because yeah. that is something that um, I think actually ties back into my point. I, I do not like... I think that Heath Ledger is a phenomenal actor in everything Yeah, of course, of course. I do not like people drawing comp like drawing conclusions that because of this performance that somehow drove him to that place. Yeah, it's I think I think that is about the fetishization of a character and the fetishization of the artist as someone who must suffer. And at the end of the day, like you said, mental health is something that needs to be treated like any other injury. It needs to be treated responsibly and it needs to be treated medically so for instance if you have a broken arm you go to the doctor if you um if you are experiencing mental health then it needs to be addressed properly not fetishized or put on a pedestal and he i'm not saying that he was guilty of that yeah. he wasn't he was suffering from it i'm saying that the audience that and like you said i think joker culture and not necessarily comic book fan culture but joker culture is a very toxic culture this we live in a society people that go and get the joker tattoo but haven't necessarily picked up a comic book before because they're sort of <laughs> I mean, you know, I, and I think that they sort of draw those two things together and really sort of jerk off over Heath's portrayal of this character. And as, the character as something doesn't, that's it doesn't belong to him Supernatural. Either. Well, not, I mean, look, but this is the thing I do want to say. I mean, that he film did, portrayal did, belongs to him, obviously. Absolutely. absolutely. But it's the a, character doesn't belong well, to him. Well, I think that he did such a phenomenal job of that character. Yeah, People suddenly saw the value of that character going, oh, well, I can get so much out of it because he pulled so much out of it. But the reason he could pull, like, he could play a broom in the corner well. Like, he's just one of those actors that is incredibly talented talented and can find the motivation for a character and portray it well he's a he is a, he was a talented artist but i think a lot of people saw that and went well if i do that then i'll be a talented artist too not understanding that it's I not mean, the look, role maybe with jared leto yes but i joaquin phoenix kicked this out of the park he was phenomenal in this role I, I, I do i do want to give him some attention now I, I, because well, he is phenomenal. I, want, I want to give him 
all the attention he is and, amazing. and all the credit for getting as much out of this incredibly 2D character. He as wasn't possible. afraid to he be did, ugly. He did exactly. He did a phenomenal job in this role. But I don't think he was given enough to get as deep as he could have, and he went further than I think was on the paper. He, I think, he did an amazing job of it. But I still think that it was a little bit thin for me. Not and the way it was written, not the way it was performed. He mm. did a wonderful job of embodying it. He was he was um, sad and terrifying, and you know, like all of the things that you said. He he encompassed the character so well. The bit where he's having the fantasy about being picked out of the crowd at the show. That vulnerability, the fact that he became he was very that, vulnerable. that little boy and the tenderness he had with his mother while he was bathing her and then the fragility of him battling the demons that he has and the way that he's treated. I think he did an incredible job. So none of this is criticism of him or his performance. But what I want to say is I want to say what I got out of this film also was how the system fails people with mental health issues. That's what I got out of the film. Well, I didn't look at yeah. it as people with mental health turn to violence. That's not how I looked at it at, at all. I know that this was one specific story. This yeah. isn't every one story. This is one specific story. Well, it, it's also how the system fails people who need help. Who, who need who, help. Or who are without means. So again, if this was, you know, Bruce Wayne who was experiencing tra trauma, head trauma and needed to see a therapist, he probably would have seen the best in the beers and got all the help that he could have, you know, that money could buy. But this is someone who needs to be needs to be assisted by by our by our society and was left in the gutter because he's not seen as you know the attitude of the people that have is just pull yourself up by your bootstraps when really the reality is that they got of course the, as as in the upper class are oblivious to what is happening or they're not oblivious but they, they refuse just don't to care. well yeah they don't care and they also refuse to accept that maybe they got ahead through things that aren't just their wonderful talent and skills but maybe they had a bit of an advantage but rather than acknowledging that going you know what I'm here because I was incredibly lucky or people were incredibly generous, or I inherited a heap of cash, or I was in the right place at the right time, they go, no, anyone could be here, but I'm here because I deserve it, because I worked hard. And, you know, that is something that we see today. So at the end no, of the day... it's sickening. Yeah. Anyway, what would you give the movie out of five stars? Out of five stars, I'd give it three. Oh, are you fucking serious? Yeah. I would give it uh, 4.25. I respect that. <laughs> no, you don't. I, I've seen your face and you're just dying. I think I think three stars from me is generous. No, the, yeah. I, you, I have to respect your opinion. I, But yes, I would give it a 4.25 out of 5. It's very emotionally moving and it raises a lot of important topics. And I think that's... A big like how, and I know, a, and I think that's really a think, good idea. And I think that says a lot to the film when it came from a 1940s comic book, and it has come to this place is quite impressive in my opinion. And I'm looking forward to the sequel, Joker: Folly de la, with Lady Gaga playing Harley Quinn. Oh, Apparently, Lord. there's a little musical number. Everyone's already complaining about it, but. Fuck everyone complaining. Let's just wait and see what happens. Why not? Why not let every... I want Jane, Dame Judi Dench to play Harley Quinn. <laughs> everyone can have a go at her now. It's, you know, like you said, it's IP. Well, Margot let Robbie gave her role. blessing. Oh, bless Margot Robbie. I like, mean, I, yeah. I don't like how Harley Quinn has become DC's new Deadpool slash cash cow, but whatever. They need to make that money somehow, those poor artists. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Batman is kind of making, making all the money for DC at the moment. Anyway, um, I'm not going to get too much into comic books because this is not a comic book podcast. It's a movie That's podcast. That's other podcasts. No. Comic books, comic book, comic books with Quaid Kirchner. Yeah, no, I've... Fuck that. Um, anyway, um, look, so... As everyone knows, this Monday is October 31st, Ooh. 
And so I don't think there's any real point in picking a theme from the glass vase because no. I think it's very obvious what the theme is for this Monday. So it's Sarwen. What does Sarwen mean? It's a traditional name for Halloween. Oh, okay. So yeah, you can try guess the theme. Anyway, we'll see you this Monday for a very spooky Ooh, episode. Um, thank you for everyone that stayed around and listened right to the end. I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry if our discourse for this quite one was intense. as torturous I mean, as it eating was a infamy. piece of cheese with needles in it. But it was not cheese. It was polenta. Polenta. Anyway, <laughs> plenty of polenta. It's time to go. Quaid, what do you, you want for dessert after this? Some dark chocolate and marmalade? No, oh, no, no, thank you. All right, love you. Bye. See you. Bye. <laughs>